Our sermon text is from Romans chapter 4. We're back in Romans now again. Submit yourself to God's inerrant word. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need you to bless the hearing and the preaching of your word. We need your spirit, the same spirit who inspired these words to work in our hearts and in our ears so that we can hear and believe the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then to go from here and to do it. And so be in our midst, transform us even in this hour, and we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. If you didn't get a handout, it might be helpful to have one. There still should be some in the back. We're back in our Romans series and a fitting passage for Reformation Day. There's an old adage that says the pen is mightier than the sword. The pen is mightier than the sword means words are more effective than violence. A person might wield his weapon in a battle and change the lives of those immediately around him. But that same person might wield his words to rally an entire nation to war. Or he might use his words to calm fears and make peace and avert war altogether. Words have the power to change statuses, to persuade minds, to shape circumstances, to alter outcomes, and to create new realities. Words spoken during a wedding ceremony have the power to change the marital status of the two people up front getting married. An ordinary citizen becomes president of the United States by uttering a few words when he takes his oath of office. But the efficacy of human words only dimly reflects the force of divine speech. The words of God and his Christ are sharper than any two-edged sword. And they have the power to penetrate the impenetrable, to divide the indivisible. In fact, God's word is a sword. And in today's passage, 
Paul continues his theological exploration of the life-giving power of God's declaration of our righteousness by faith alone. If you're a believer, God has said of you and to you, you are righteous before me, righteous in my eyes, righteous in my sight. That's what the words justification and justified mean. Your justification is God's pronouncement of your righteousness. The most important pronouncement about you. It's a powerful pronouncement. It's a status-changing declaration. Now, in the translation of Romans in your handout, I use the term declared righteous instead of justified in order to show what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about God's authoritative, reality-shaping, destiny-changing, powerful declaration of our righteousness, our righteous standing in Christ Jesus our Lord by faith in Him. Paul explains in our text here the connection between God's verbal verdict on the one hand and the sign and the seal of that verdict on the other hand. He clarifies the relationship between salvation and the Old Testament sign and seal of circumcision. In Paul's day, many Jews had tied God's declaration of righteousness to the ritual of circumcision. No circumcision, they said, no righteous standing before God. They're tied together, inseparable. Now, you may remember from your Bible reading that Paul had to deal with this heresy earlier at length in the Galatian churches. Do you remember that? Soon after Paul had left Galatia, false teachers descended on the churches Paul had planted there. And these false teachers called Judaizers began teaching that a person is declared righteous before God by trusting in Christ, yes, and by being circumcised. You're not saved by faith in Christ alone, they said, but by faith plus circumcision. They required believing Gentiles to get circumcised because to these Judaizers, it was unthinkable that God would set aside the sign of the covenant with the Jews, a sign that had been firmly in place for 2,000 years, going all the way back to Father Abraham. Paul addresses this theological error, this grave error, by taking us back, by taking them back and us back to Father Abraham and showing us how to do sound theology. We learn theological method here from Paul. Paul's point in today's paragraph is that Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. Years before, even decades before, the chronology is not explicit, probably decades before. This means his circumcision could have had nothing at all to do with his righteousness before God. His circumcision was merely the sign and the seal of the righteousness that God had previously credited to Abraham's account earlier by faith alone. Back in verses 1 to 8, it's been a while since we were in 1 to 8. We've had some other things going on. But back in verses 1 to 8, Paul answered the question of whether our righteousness before God comes through works, through obedience. 
The answer was no. Now, in verses 9 to 12, he answers the question of whether our righteousness before God comes through ritual. Again, the answer is no. In both of these subsections, Paul appeals to Abraham both times because if he can show that Father Abraham was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the coming Christ alone, apart from works and apart from circumcision, then he has established the doctrine of sola fide, by faith alone. Up in verse 3, Paul quoted Genesis 15, 6, and he quoted it as proof that Abraham was justified, declared righteous by faith apart from works. For what does the scripture say, Paul asks in verse 3? And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is evidence that Abraham didn't earn anything from God. He didn't trot out his obedience to God. Rather, he trusted in God's promise to provide an heir. And God counted this faith as righteousness. At its core, Abraham's faith was faith in the promised Messiah. And that's why Abraham could be saved by it. God counted Abraham's Christian faith, his faith in the coming Christ, as a stand-in for the righteousness that Abraham lacked on his own. And really, God was crediting to his account the righteousness of that future Messiah and his obedient life and obedient death. By faith, Abraham laid hold of that obedient life and obedient death of the future Messiah, even though he didn't have all the theological details of the coming Christ worked out. Then in verses 6 to 8, Paul used the example of King David as further evidence that our obedience to God neither establishes nor maintains our righteous standing with God. David himself believed that sinners are saved only by God, only when God graciously credits his own righteousness to their account and when he mercifully does not credit their own sins to their account. He does he says both there. Paul anticipates the follow-up question perhaps from the Judaizers, but even maybe from genuine Jewish converts to Christianity. But what about circumcision? It feels like we should keep practicing that ritual. It, is it possible to belong to God without becoming a Jew? Is it possible to be in covenant with God without this sign? In response, Paul does what he often does, he asks his own question in verse 9. Is this blessedness then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? At the time of the Reformation, a little over 500 years ago, Luther and the Protestant reformers had to address similar theological errors and aberrations that had cropped up in the church of God. The leaders of the Roman church were teaching that sinners could be saved through their own good works and through the sacraments. Even today, some Christians misunderstand the relationship between salvation and the sacraments. The Bible teaches that baptism and the Lord's Supper are effective means of receiving God's grace. 
but they're effective as signs and seals, not as cornerstones. The sacraments form no part of the foundation or the the basis or the ground of our righteous standing before God. The bedrock of our salvation is Christ and his saving work on the cross alone. No ritual, not even one instituted by God, contains within itself the power to save, the power to deliver. Paul's going to help us see the relationship between salvation and sacraments by showing us the relationship between saving faith and the sacraments. Now, by by sacrament, sacrament's not in the Bible, but by sacrament, I mean all of those ceremonies in the Old Testament and in the New Testament instituted by God that are meant to communicate and confirm God's saving promises to his people. So circumcision and Passover were sacraments, just as baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacraments in that way. So what is the connection between faith and the sacraments? Paul says that faith comes first, sacraments come second. There's a priority. Look at the second half of verse 9. And I'll be reading from the handout translation. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham for righteousness. He again here quotes from Genesis 15, 6. Verse 10, how then was it counted? How's this work? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And then he answers, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness before Abraham received the sacrament, the sign and seal of circumcision. Faith came first, the sacrament came second. This means that salvation precedes the sacraments theologically. We might ask then why God waited so long to to have Abraham circumcised. If, if If it's the sign and seal, why not join them temporally in Abraham's life. What, what was the purpose? We might ask it this way. What was the purpose of this time gap between Abraham's justification and circumcision? Well, the, Paul, Paul answers the question in the second half of verse 11. I'm skipping uh, uh, some of it for now, the first part of verse 11. We're going to come back to it. But, but see the answer in the second part of verse 11. The purpose, Paul says, was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness might be counted to them also. So this chronological gap was intentional. God ordained it so that Abraham might clearly be the father of all who believe without circumcision. In other words, Abraham was a justified Gentile long before he became a Jew, a justified Jew. And this means that he was the father of believing Gentiles before he was the father of believing Jews, that great Gentile Abraham. This might lead some to wonder then if if circumcision was even necessary. And Paul seems to be maybe indirectly addressing that. If Abraham could be declared righteous without circumcision for decades, then was there really any benefit 
and getting circumcised? Well, yes, and Paul's already answered that question earlier, not in this passage, but up in chapter 3. His response was much in every way to the question, is there, is there any profit to, become, to being a Jew or being circumcised? Much in every way, Paul says at the beginning of chapter 3, circumcision is profitable, but only for those who share Abraham's faith, the faith that he had before circumcision. Verse 12 says that Abraham is, quote, the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had while he was uncircumcised. Notice how both the Gentiles and the Jews are invited to look at the faith that Abraham had while he was a Gentile. Paul's point is that a circumcised Jew, if he wants to be righteous before God, a circumcised Jew must rise to the level of that famous Gentile father Abraham by adopting his Gentile faith. You can see how this message might have offended those first century Jews. It might have offended that Jewish pride. As one writer put it, Paul has turned the Jews' boast upside down. It is not the Gentile that must come to the Jews' circumcision for salvation. It is the Jew who must come to a Gentile faith. Such faith as Abraham had long before he was circumcised. End quote. Jews and Gentiles are alike, alike are saved not by human works or religious rituals, but by faith in the righteous works and the righteous blood of Jesus Christ, which are credited to the believer and applied to the believer by the Holy Spirit immediately. Brothers and sisters, by your faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from your good works and apart from your baptism and apart from your participation in the Lord's Supper and apart from your faithful church attendance, important though all those things are, by your faith alone, the obedient life and obedient death of Christ have been credited to your account. And the blood of the Passover lamb has been sprinkled on the doorposts of your heart by the Holy Spirit. So again, what's the point of the sacraments? What do they do? How do they benefit us? Well, verse 11, we finally come to really the, the heart of this passage. He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while uncircumcised. The two key words there are sign and seal. We're going to explore what those words mean. Circumcision signified and sealed. I'm using the verb of those two nouns. They signified and sealed to Abraham the righteousness of Christ which God had counted to him years earlier. Circumcision communicated and confirmed to Abraham the gospel promises of God going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, which is where the first gospel promise appears in Scripture. That's where God said to Adam and Eve right after they had fallen, actually speaking to the serpent when he says it, that he would send a Savior, the righteous seed of the woman, who would slay the serpent and save his people from their sins. And so the sacraments are... Communicate that promise, remind us of that promise, confirm that promise to those who believe it. 
the new covenant side and seal that most resembles circumcision is baptism. In the old covenant, circumcision pointed to the need for a circumcised heart. The, the Deuteronomy and, and Jeremiah make it clear that outward circumcision was not the end. That's not the goal. It was a circumcised heart that God was after. And, and outward circumcision was a, a symbol of that, a pointer to that, a sign and seal of that. Of course, not every outwardly circumcised Jew possessed a circumcised heart, but that was the goal. The spiritual benefits offered in circumcision by God, the spiritual benefits offered in circumcision could only be received by the person whose heart God had circumcised. In the New Covenant, baptism also points to the need for a circumcised heart Paul makes this extremely explicit at the end of Romans 2. The need for a new heart is the same as it was in the old covenant. But in the new covenant, we have a better entrance ceremony. One that females as well as males can participate in. Again, though, of course, not every baptized Christian possesses a new heart a circumcised heart, but that's the goal. The spiritual benefits offered in baptism can only be received by the person whose heart God has circumcised. It works the same in both covenants. I want to show you where Paul teaches this uh, even more overtly. Flip in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. It's six books over from Romans. In Colossians 2, Paul makes the connection between circumcision and baptism explicit. And it'll be helpful if if you're looking at it with me here. I'll start in verse 11 and read through verse 12. Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That's the circumcision of the heart. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism. In which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, that's... There's a lot packed in there. In verse 11, we're just going to look at it, make a couple observations here. In verse 11, Paul equates salvation, equates the new birth with the circumcision that Christ performs on the heart of the believer. The circumcision made without hands, Paul calls it. And the, and the source of that is the circumcision of Christ, which there's debates on what, does that refer to the cross his death on the cross, or just does it refer to the work of Christ in the human heart? It, it really, for our purposes, it doesn't matter because the point is that Christ, through the work of the cross, is circumcising the believer with a circumcision made without hands. Ultimately, we get to a heart circumcision here in verse 11, performed by Christ. Verse 12 then mentions baptism as the ritual that corresponds to heart circumcision. The promises of God, you see, attached to baptism are received by those and only by those whose hearts 
Christ has circumcised. Another way of saying this is that only those with saving faith can receive the promises contained in the gift of baptism. Baptism is a gift. It's a present that must be opened. Faith alone can open the gift of baptism and benefit from what's inside. Notice how Paul prioritizes faith in verse 12. The saving benefits signified and sealed in baptism only save those who possess saving faith. He says, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith. Faith must be present. Without faith, baptism by itself can do nothing for anyone. With faith, baptism becomes a means of grace to you. Baptism signifies and seals. It communicates and confirms saving benefits to those who receive them with saving faith. So since Paul uses this language of sign and seal, let's think for a moment about just these two terms and how they work more generally. What are signs and seals and how do they function? When a man and a woman come together in the covenant of marriage... They make promises and they pledge themselves to one another. Each one vows his or her love and loyalty to the other. Right? Words are spoken. Along with the vows, though, what do they give each other? Rings, right? Tokens, symbols, signs, seals, which signify and seal the spoken promises. The rings confirm what was verbalized in the vows. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, so just understand that going into it, but it is a good analogy. In the same way, the sacraments, Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper, signify and seal the spoken promises of God in His Word. Baptism, baptism and communion are the, co the new covenant signs and seals because God has attached His gospel vows to these two ceremonies. Two rituals communicate, confirm, and assure salvation to everyone who lays hold of the gospel promises attached to these two ceremonies. Let's try to bring it down even more to, to where the rubber really meets the road. If you're a baptized Christian, your baptism is like your wedding ring. Baptism is God's pledge to love you and to be with you to the end. Till the end of the age, Jesus says, it's his promise to keep his covenant vows to you. Now, if you've been in my home when we've sung Jesus Loves Me, you know that we sing it a little differently. It's mostly the same, but we, we just changed a couple of words. We say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. My baptism tells me so. Just as my wedding ring tells me that Brandy loves me and is committed to me, my baptism tells me, in an even greater way, that God loves me and is committed to me personally. Yes, the Bible is where God makes his promises. That's why we didn't change the first part of the verse, for the Bible tells me so. That's true. 
But my baptism is where he pledges himself specifically and personally to me. It's where all his promises are packaged and presented to me as a gift with my name on it. My baptism has my name and God's name on it. Your baptism has your name and God's name on it. Every baptism is a unique sign and seal of God's love for a particular individual. So when you begin to doubt whether you belong to Jesus, allow your baptism to reassure you of God's love for you in Christ. This is how Martin Luther, the man of the Reformation, made use of his baptism. Luther often wrestled with discouragement and doubt. He questioned at times whether the Reformation was even a good thing. At times he questioned his faith and the sufficiency of Christ's work. He was under attack, no doubt, because he was at the forefront of the Protestant Reformation in Germany. In response to these dark nights of the soul, Luther would say to himself, and sometimes he would even write it in chalk on the table, Baptizatus sum. I am baptized. This was Luther's mantra. Baptizatus sum. I am baptized. Whether he is happy or sad, overwhelmed or carefree, whether God seemed close to him or far off, as he often felt to the psalmist, Luther habitually reminded himself that he had received the sign and seal of God's righteousness. I am baptized. God has made promises to me. God has pledged himself to me. God has sent his son to die for me. Christ has suffered and bled for me. My particular sins and all of them have been nailed to the cross my baptism tells me so. That's only half of it, isn't it? Baptism also obligates the person baptized. In the traditional wedding liturgy, when the man and the woman exchange rings, not only does the one giving the ring make vows, but the one receiving the ring also responds with the pledge of loyalty. After the man or woman receives the ring, the pastor asks, do you receive this ring as a token of your pledge to perform your vows faithfully? And that's when the man or the woman says, I do. Fellow Christian, your unique baptism, the one with both God's name and your name on it, is not only a sign and seal of God's promises specifically to you, it's also a token of your pledge to, to perform your covenant obligations faithfully. When you recall your baptism, remember that God has become your loving Father and now you must be His faithful Son. God has pledged Himself to you in His Son. Now you must commit yourself to God in His Son. The sacraments not only signify and seal spiritual benefits, they also warn of spiritual dangers. 1 
1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that some were dying because they were despising the church of God during the Lord's Supper, failing to discern the body. Paul said in Romans 2 that if a Jew did not keep covenant with God, his circumcision would become uncircumcision. That's how Paul puts it. And he would come under the judgment of the law. When the sacraments are not embraced with faith, they become vehicles of judgment rather than signs and seals of salvation. Jacob and Esau both received the covenant sign of circumcision. Yet only Jacob embraced the covenant and put his faith in Christ, while Esau despised the covenant and sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Hebrews 12, 17. The story of Jacob and Esau is a cautionary tale of two covenant children. Let it be a warning to us as well as to our children. Just because you've passed through the waters of baptism and you eat the bread and the wine does not mean you are automatically saved. Like Abraham, you must exercise living, active, obedient faith in Christ and his righteousness. You must keep covenant with your God. You must receive the new covenant sign and seal, signs and seals as tokens of your pledge to perform your vows faithfully. Apart from your, apart from your obedient faith, your baptism will become unbaptism, to use Paul's way of talking. Paul says in verse 12 that Abraham is the father of those who walk in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith was not just a talking faith, a confessing faith. It was also a walking faith. True faith, saving faith, walks and breathes and loves and repents and obeys. It's living and active because it's animated by the Spirit of God. The first century Jews needed to understand the relationship between circumcision and salvation. Circumcision was powerless to make one righteous in God's law court. Only faith in the perfect righteousness of Christ can assure and secure God's powerful, status-changing declaration that a person is righteous in his sight. As a sign and seal, however, Circumcision was beneficial. It authenticated God's covenant promises. And the same is true of the new covenant sign and seal of baptism and the sign and seal of the Lord's Supper. They are powerless in themselves to make you right with God. But as signs and seals, they are beneficial. They confirm what God has declared about you in Christ. So behind the signs and seals of the covenant stand the obedient life and death of Jesus Christ. Behind the signs and seals of the covenant stand the obedient life and death of Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on what's behind or beyond the sacraments, not on the sacraments 
themselves. The sacraments are not paintings to be stared at so much as they are windows to be looked through, windows into the cross work of Christ on your behalf. Yes, Jesus loves you. Yes, Jesus loves you. Yes, Jesus loves you. Your baptism tells you so. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for communicating to us through your word and through visible signs and seals that we can see and feel, that we can touch and taste. And we thank you most of all for the gospel promises contained in your word and pointed to in the sacraments. And Lord, may everyone here grow in the saving faith that you must give you the circumciser of hearts. Grant true, living, abiding faith to us, to every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in this congregation. We need you to accomplish this, and so we ask for it in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.